Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you are talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and joining me as always is Duncan Castles. We've got a lot to get through today on Monday's podcast, but we're going to start with breaking news regarding Raheem Sterling, who, of course, has been more talked about for his altercation with Joe Gomez in the England canteen in the last seven days. But more interestingly, going forward in terms of his career at Manchester City, it's our information that Sterling and his representatives have declined several offers to discuss a new contract, an extended contract at the Etihad. Now, Sterling has a contract which runs till 2023, but such has been his outstanding form, both goals and assists, that City hierarchy are desperate to time down to an even longer term deal on better terms. However, we understand that Sterling would like to find out what his options are at the end of this season with regards to potentially changing club and even changing country and league. Duncan, you have spoken before um, in terms of Sterling and his ambitions and things that you've heard with regards to his uh, um, possible desire to play in a different league. Are you surprised by the fact that there has been this kind of, I guess, brick wall um, uh, response to City's offer to discuss a new deal? Uh, as well as the fact that um, clearly he is one of the most sought-after players in European, if not world football right now. I'm not surprised. Um, if you look at it from Sterling's perspective, he, he definitely has an ambition to play overseas um, before he finishes his career. He's still a young man in footballing terms. He'll turn 25 next month. Um However, he does have a lot of football under his belt because he broke into senior football at such a young age. Um, one of the countries he definitely wants to play in is Spain. He's, um, he's told friends he would like to, to experience Spanish football at one stage. It's understandable why he of, um, of the English players you have now um, is probably one of the best suited to playing in Spanish football with the, the technicality of his game um, with uh, in a league where a player of a smaller size uh, is protected and uh, not certainly not at disadvantage from a playing point of view. I mean, if you look at his status in the game at present, I think you're right to say he is now easily regarded as one of the top players in Europe. Um, I think it's fair to say also he would be the top player in English football, certainly from a transfer perspective in terms of a player that the top clubs would want to sign, make um, a, you know, a key stone signing for them and, uh, and make a substantial difference to their team. I think he would be ahead of Harry Kane in that perspective, given his form over the last year and a half to two years. Um, I think the only thing in Kane's favour there is that he is now in, in a, as a centre forward, he's in a position where it's actually very hard to recruit. I was talking to someone in um, high level recruitment recently and he was arguing that at present he thinks that number nine role is the, is the player um, in shortest supply. Um, and uh, hardest to identify for a top-level club um, across Europe at present. But Sterling, I think overall, 
um, would be more desirable than Kane, a uh, better fitness record, um, a, a trajectory that has gone up and up and up. And, uh, you know, the question of how far he can go, can he still improve on the numbers he is presenting at the moment? But he, can he become more comfortable playing in a central role? He's never going to be a number nine, but he could be that false nine, which Guardiola has used him as at times. And can he push those goal scoring and, and goal creating numbers up? Um, if you look at it then from Sterling's perspective, having signed a new contract with Manchester City last year, if he again improves his contract with City and extends again, uh, adds another um, five-year deal, which would be the standard thing to do in this situation, which would then take him to 2024, um, if it was extended during the, the current season, potentially 2025, you're then making it very hard for yourself as a player to leave Manchester City for several years. We know City are a club who only sell on their terms. The very, very rare is that they have lost a player that they want to retain. We have that um, issue at present with Leroy Zani and the question of whether they will have to sell him in January, have to sell him in the summer because he refuses to renew or so far has refused to renew his contract and City may have to take a pragmatic decision to um, to take a transfer fee from that deal rather than let him leave the club for nothing. But Sterling, they basically have tied down um, in the sense that it's going to be very hard for Sterling to leave in terms of transfer fee, in terms of salary. Uh, and if he renews again, it gets harder still. So I think that's the perspective there. And I think in Sterling's case, we often see English players when they are angling for new contracts, uh, being linked with Barcelona, being linked with Real Madrid. We've seen that recently with Marcus Rashford, uh, which is, I think, was a very odd link because realistically, do you see Marcus Rashford being an upgrade for Barcelona or Real Madrid? seen it with a gamut of players and what tends to happen is it's used as a negotiating tool to increase their salary at their current club. With Sterling, I think there would be that perspective there, but I think that it, but I know there is a genuine interest in in leaving to go to Spain. So we're talking about um, a player who does want to play there and who is actively trying to find that move. I I guess the question, Mark, is can he... um, suck one of the big Spanish clubs in uh, to the point where they're prepared to invest what would be a huge amount of money um, to secure him over other targets they have. Um, Barcelona, already heavily loaded in attack. Um, They are looking for a a Luis Suarez replacement, but the character of forward they're looking for to replace Suarez is not Sterling's type. Uh, Real Madrid have also got a lot of players of Sterling's type in their team, um, have recently added Eden Hazard um, at great expense. So can he convince Real Madrid to pursue him? I, I think that would depend on who their next manager is and that next manager saying to Florentino Perez, I would like this guy in my team. I think, I think that there's a possibility there because the player wants to come. We should pursue him. But again, even even if he gets there, you have that brick wall of of Manchester City um, if they decide to block it and whether Sterling would be prepared to go head to head with Manchester City and and force a move, which is something it's very difficult to do. 
look at it from Manchester City's perspective, mention Zani, um, they have serious problems there in the sense that Zani uh, is, has been considering his f- future for a long time, is unhappy um, with the way he was handled during the summer, uh, was unhappy with the offers to improve his contract that were presented to him by Manchester City, was unhappy was unhappy by the way he was partially sidelined by Guardiola last season, was unhappy that he was played in the Community Shield um, when he expected not to play in that match because there were ongoing uh, talks with Bayern Munich about a move and ended up with a a cruciate ligament injury, which he, um, interestingly, as Rafi Honigstein pointed out in the podcast a few weeks ago, he refused um, to go to Guardiola's choice of surgeon, Ramon Kugat in Barcelona, and instead went to a surgeon in Austria who Bayern Munich prefer to use um, for the uh, major work that has to be done on their players. So, if you you know if you consider that from Manchester City's perspective, they have a big question mark over Zani, who we identified at the start of the season as being a, a major miss for them, in, in that he is a player who has the pace to break down those kind of packed defences that they, they face and gives them options in games. And I think we've seen how missing him has damaged their, their title challenge. And then you might have this question mark over Sterling as well. So you've got two of your key creative players in that kind of, you know, uh, peak age range when Manchester City definitely want to retain them and and uh, and have them probably for another five years in their ideal plan. Um, thinking about moves elsewhere and City not being sure whether they'll be able to retain those players, which is a novel um, scenario for Manchester City. So allow me to be just a little bit mischievous here, Duncan. I know that our listeners are used to that from me, but <laughs> um, how do you replace the irreplaceable? In Manchester City's case, I would say Sterling is pretty much irreplaceable. In Barcelona's case, I would say Leo Messi is pretty much irreplaceable. However, and you know, we can interpret these things however you want to do, uh, whether it's you know bargaining for a new contract and upgrade or whatever, or whether it's a definite sort of uh, intention to do something different. But Messi now um, clearly has a release clause in his contract we can leave for free in June uh, 2020. Now, what if, because let's face it, Sterling is probably about as close to Messi as you can get in football right now in terms of goals and assists and his link play and everything else. I'm not saying he's even able to lace Messi's boots, but Messi is seven years older. Would City be prepared to say, do you know what? Why don't we just do the deal? We take Messi for free. We sell Sterling to Barcelona. He gets what he wants. We get what we want, albeit Messi is that bit older, etc., etc. But both clubs benefit from the fact that they've got the money to play with, with regards to the huge salaries both players command, without actually impacting on them in a massive way in terms of fees and FFP. I'm not saying that City won't demand a big fee for Sterling, but at the same time releasing him and getting the money to pay for Messi's salary would be a huge advantage. Is that a possible scenario? 
given that what we know and what we've reported about City's constant per, um, pursuing of Leo Messi in the last three years? Well, it's an interesting proposal. Um, you're right that Messi is a player that City have wanted to sign. Um, you have Khaldun Al-Mubarak, the, the chairman of Manchester City and uh, you know a key man in the Abu Dhabi government um, talking in a conference in Abu Dhabi in front of um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, who uh, is the ruler of um, Abu Dhabi and uh, fundamental to the, the sort of Manchester City project about how Lionel Messi, uh, his failure to persuade Lionel Messi to come to Manchester City was the, the transfer he he regretted missing out on above others. So, you know, there is that stated desire to sign that player. You have to, obviously, you would have to factor in that Messi's salary is massively higher than uh, Sterling's and he would, he would be expecting a huge signing on fee so from a financial perspective even taking money from Barcelona and transfer fee for Sterling um, and, and bringing Messi there would probably cost City more money overall in terms of put more money uh, uh, as a cost of that transfer across um, the duration of the contract and retaining Sterling on increased wages would and then and you are signing a player who would then be 33 years of age um, who you it's difficult to see Messi carrying on in football for too many more years we have seen Messi talk about how it gets harder and harder to perform at the level he performs at um, you know his the way he talks about the longevity of his career is in stark contrast to Cristiano Ronaldo, who's who's publicly talking about breaking the record for being um, the highest international goal scorer of of all time. Said he says he wants to play um, to forty or beyond. You know that the the attitude difference there is huge, and the physical difference in the players is obvious. Ronaldo's in much better physical condition than Messi, so it would kind of go against everything that's been Manchester City's transfer strategy during this period in which they've established themselves as the predominant force in English football. They, they don't sign older players. They sign players in Sterling's age range or younger who they can hold for two long-term contracts, see their value increase on the balance sheet, get the best performance for them. But Messi is that outlier. That's the you know the player that um, they've wanted to sign and wanted to bring to the club. I think you've also got to see it from Messi's perspective. Um, he's had these opportunities before. He's been offered huge amounts of money before and he has always chosen to stay at Barcelona. And there is this, um, we know that Barcelona have considered moving him out. Um, that has been an open discussion within the, the directorate in past years that he costs too much money, he has too much power in the dressing room, he has too much power around the club. But in, on each of those occasions, the Barcelona board has folded to the pressure from Messi and his father and folded to the expectation from the fans that Lionel Messi is almost more than the club, to use that phrase, that is the, is the Barcelona motto. Messi uh, un Messi. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Is Barcelona Messi or Messi? So I think that is 
even if City were to go down that line, and that I think would be driven absolutely by Abu Dhabi, that is not something Chiki Bergiristan I think would um, would recommend of his football experience is the way to go forward. The best strategy for uh, keeping Manchester City at the top of the game in England and and finally winning that European Cup. So even if Abu Dhabi went down that line, I'm not sure they'd be able to prize him out of Barcelona and persuade Messi to go there. Well, you heard it here first. <clears throat> we did talk about time capsule last Friday, about Mbappe and his contract. So let's just see if Messi and Sterling could indeed be involved in some kind of deal between Manchester City and Barcelona in June next year. Duncan, we've had the release of Manchester United's quarterly results um, today. Um, they are, you know, as financial results tend to be, especially for our fans who are listening, pretty boring. But we know some fans are very excited by these things because it gives them a health check on um, the Old Trafford Club. But one of the highlights uh, has to be said, and this was included in the press release, was United's inclusion of a line about their participation potentially in a new FIFA extended World Club Cup in China in 2021 and the revenue that that might generate for them. Now, this, of course, is in contradiction to a signatory letter they signed uh, with the European Club Association, which said they would not support a extended FIFA World Club Cup of 24 teams instead of seven. And also the idea that United, who currently languish um, outside of Champions League places and indeed have reached only two quarterfinals in the last seven years, would even qualify through their coefficient to play in that Club World Cup. So what the hell is going on, Duncan? I mean, it seems both bizarre or, you know, on two counts. One, it contradicts their um, collusion with the ECA, but also we don't think that it's possible they would even uh, qualify under their current coefficient. Yeah, it's fascinating that they've, they've they put this as the second item in their highlights from their first quarter fiscal 2020 results. So the first item of highlight is new long-term contracts for Mason Greenwood and Brandon Williams. And the second is FIFA Club World Cup expands to 24 teams from seven beginning in 2021 with the first tournament to be played in China. As you say, um, you know the only reason to put that in there is as a bit of good news as potential future revenue for Manchester United for investors. That's why you would put it in an investor's report. Um, you know, you don't use an investor's report to give a little update on what's happening in the general world of football. Um, and you're correct. that uh, Ed Woodward was a signatory to a letter that uh, European Club Association immediately released when FIFA confirmed that they were going to expand the Club World Cup to 24 teams and that the first tournament would be in China in 2021. And it was that um, the ECA would were recommending um, that they would not participate in this new tournament uh, because they had serious concerns over how it had been kind of wedged into the international match calendar 
for the 2021 year. So to, to, to give you the detail of that, FIFA proposed that the finals would run from the 17th June to 4th July um, in 2021, and uh, that the African Cup of Nations and the CONCACAF Gold Cup, um, the African Cup of Nations, of course, is a tournament where a lot of Champions League players and Premier League players appear, would start on the 5th of July, so the day after the Club World Cup was due to finish, which has obvious issues at a time in which um, the FIFPRO, the, the World Professional Footballers Association, is trying is emphasising the dangers of the international match calendar and that, that, that uh, footballers are, are being overplayed and have no time to properly rest because of international tournaments, because of expansion of club tournaments, because of um, pre-season tours uh, overseas and uh, a warning that footballers are in danger of, of getting burnt out. Um, also, as you say, the, the FIFA proposal for this Club World Cup is that there will be eight participants from European club sides. So eight European clubs will be allowed into that first 24-team tournament. They haven't announced how they will... Um, how the uh, selection process for those eight teams will be made up um, and there was a debate over whether it would be might be by invitation rather than by uh, performance on the field um, but if it is done in performance on the field you would assume that those eight would be the quarter finalists from that year's that preceding year's Champions League. And if you look at Manchester United's record since Edward Woodward became ex executive vice chairman in the seven seasons he's been in charge, Manchester United have gone no further than the quarterfinals of the Champions League and, the, and they've only managed to make the quarterfinals two out of those seven seasons, which makes you wonder what investors would be thinking of when they read that the second highlight of Manchester United's quarterly report is this new revenue-generating tournament where the assumption presumably is that Manchester United would be part of, um, given that their, their recent records suggest that they would only get in there two years out of seven and they're on course for, um, for missing out on the Champions League for a second consecutive year um, for the first time since Woodward took charge, which of course will have major um, ramifications for the sponsorship money they receive from Adidas and some other of their commercial partners, um, which brings us back to what those financial results said, and they're not they're not pretty reading. Um, the only real highlight in favour of United is that they finally managed to push commercial revenue up for the first time in four years. And even then, it's only gone up by 5.9%. Um, their broadcast revenue is significantly down because they miss out in Champions League by 23%. Um, their wages have gone down um, by 8.8%, but that's because of the clauses in their contracts that allow them to pay players less when uh, they aren't in the Champions League. So what you see there is the damage missing out in Champions League football does to Manchester United's finances. So the broadcast revenue goes down 23% and they only claw back 9% of it on wages. Um, and they have reiterated their expectations that 
for this full financial year, Manchester United's revenue will drop by between 50 and 70 million. Uh, which is a very significant chunk of their, um, their the record revenues that they declared for the 18-19 season of £627 uh, million. Pounds. We'd also have to point out, Duncan, that um, by custom and practice, and of course this again is speculative because we don't know what FIFA's plans are, you would probably take two teams from each of the four major leagues. So let's say England, Spain... Germany and Italy uh, for the eight teams who would automatically either qualify or be invited to the new World Club Cup format. Now, United would be nowhere near that or based on coefficient to start with. But also, if you extended that beyond those four leagues, because you'd be ignoring Portugal and France, and PSG would not be very happy if they weren't invited uh, to a FIFA World Club Cup, which was expanded to 24 teams, then United would have even less chance of being invited. I mean, you'd have to say that Manchester City and Liverpool are way ahead of them in that. And then even likes of Spurs and Chelsea would be ahead again based on current uh, positionings and even the historical coefficient standings as well. So it's very, very, um, I'd say... Uh, hmm, expectational of Manchester United or presumptive for them to think that they can put in a press release based on 2019 first, or, sorry, 2020 first quarterly results that somehow revenue will be advanced and increased by their participation in that particular term, unless, of course, they know something that we don't and it's not going to be done on coefficient or qualification, it will be done on reputation. Yes, uh, that would be something that's a possibility. And remember, um, the, the Club World Cup, uh, there have been proposals that Saudi Arabia fund the tournament, provide money to FIFA um, to, uh, to guarantee the revenues and then sell those revenues on themselves from, for, and take the broadcast revenue from them. And of course, we have that link, a very strong link, with Saudi Arabia and Manchester United, with um, one of the Glazer family and Richard Arnold, who was involved in the, the conference call on um, United's quarterly results today. Um, recently, uh, travelling to Saudi Arabia, um, Richard Arnold meeting with um, a number of senior government ministers over there. And we know that Saudi Arabia have an interest in, in purchasing um, Manchester United. So there is... A link there. Um, I think I mean, you, you mentioned the idea that you take the top two clubs from the top four leagues in Europe. I think that would go down extremely badly if FIFA tried to do that. Obviously, it's the commercial, commercially attractive way to do it, but that is not going to be popular in general in football if you don't give the whole of European football the, the, the chance to access um, the, 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 uh, the Club World Cup. Um, and it's obviously not going to be popular if it's done on an invitational basis, um, basically picking the, the biggest name clubs who, who will, who will um, sell the tournament to a global audience. But, you know, the, these results and the way Manchester United talk about them, we've got Ed Woodward again giving a mission statement to investors um, that our ultimate goal is to win trophies play fast attacking football 
Um, and then going into more details in the press release and talking about how proud they are that they're going to reach shortly approaching a milestone 4,000th game featuring an academy player. And we are particularly optimistic regarding the considerable young talent currently coming through. Um, our ultimate goal is to win trophies by playing exciting football with a team that fuses graduates from our academy with world-class acquisitions and also talking about how great the recruitment department is and what significant strides they've made forward and that the, the signings of Harry Maguire, Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Daniel James demonstrate how good they are in those areas. Um, it's just not borne out on the field of play. It's all this, we, this is what we, we are we are trying to do this is what we want to do we will win trophies um playing good football it's uh, it's it really comes across as quite naive and um and out of touch with with where they are as a club and and um how other clubs represent themselves to uh investors and, and to the marketplace in general all of this, Duncan, leads me to believe that perhaps Edward gave um, his statement in a straw house and was jumping up and down, trying to find something at the time. Um, we shall see, I suspect, with the FIFA World Club Cup revamp, that they will um, probably recognise that if the investors in the competition uh, want a return on that particular investment, then uh, European club participation will be increased. Uh, and that possibly, Duncan, will include invitationals rather than just uh, coefficient in terms of the way that clubs are uh, in, uh, taking on board uh, to um, participate in that particular competition because... Uh, that's where the money is in terms of the broadcasting and everything else. So we shall see. But 2021 yeah, just, is... Just, just to give you the what the proposal is for slot allocation, which FIFA said yeah. has been confirmed, it's three teams from Africa, three teams from Asia, not including host nation, eight European, three CONCACAF, so North and Central America, half a team from Oceania, um, and six from South America, and then the host nation gets half. So obviously they're proposing a, a playoff um, between a Chinese team and an Oceania team for that final slot. So it's actually quite um, equitably distributed um, in terms of a, only one third of the teams coming from Europe, given the predominance of uh, European club teams in, in the kind of the global world game uh, from a broadcasting perspective at present. Well, we shall certainly see how that one works out. As I said, 2021 is not that far away. And uh, as you detailed, Duncan, the logistics have to be worked out well in advance in order that um, pre-seasons and everything else can be put into perspective um, because of domestic competitions. So I think we'll be definitely hearing much more about that in the next six months. Moving on uh, from the last 10 days of international football, of course, we have a very um, interesting and exciting game ahead. Uh, in this weekend's EPL calendar, which is Chelsea versus Manchester City. 
it gives us the opportunity, which we have explored in a smaller way so far, to more better analyse the what could be described as the accidental revolution at Chelsea under Frank Lampard's stewardship. Of course, they um, obeyed FIFA's transfer ban last summer, when, of course, no players were recruited apart from the uh, ability to sign Kovacic from Real Madrid, who was on loan. Um, but in doing so, Frank Lampard has indeed uh, put out a team who is now, uh, who, who are now challenging uh, for top four, if not indeed uh, challenging Manchester City for second place, while Liverpool, of course, are eight points ahead. Duncan, is it true to say um, from your sources that um, this has been a bit of a blessing in disguise for Chelsea, for a club who notoriously spend a lot of money uh, in every transfer window in order to improve their team, but instead this time with a guy who obviously knows the club inside out, have been given the ability uh, by default, essentially, to simply promote players in the academy and players who, of course, Frank had a lot of, uh, some of them, um, experience with Derby County last season. Yeah, look, that's very much how it's being perceived from inside Chelsea. And I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't um, contest the ban in the summer, because it gave them an opportunity to promote these players from their academy that lots of people internally in Chelsea felt were good enough um, to be Chelsea first team players um, with that an excuse for not doing anything in the transfer market. All clubs um, at most times are under pressure from their supporters to buy in the transfer market. If you look back, you'll see majority of Chelsea fans were press, would, would have liked to have had money spent in the summer. That's flipped off the back of you know a few months of uh, great results in that you now have Chelsea fans hoping that the, the and stating that they're hoping that the ban isn't lifted and they continue with the same group of, of young players performing at the level they're, they're performing for the rest of the season. So from Chelsea's perspective, it was a blessing. Um, they chose the right man in that Frank Lampard had, had played uh, or played n- numerous, several of these players at Derby County. Um, Jody Morris had obviously worked with far more of them in his past position at the academy at Chelsea. Um, and interesting conversation with someone within um, the Chelsea hierarchy last week. And he his argument was that in retrospect, he thinks it was a blessing for Frank Lampard to have this scenario in which he couldn't buy in his first window at the club because you're looking at an inexperienced manager, looking at a manager um, taking charge in the Premier League for the first time. And he he pointed out that one of the tough things for any new manager coming into a club to do is to get your way of playing, your way of training across to the squad you inherit and get the players to buy into your way of working. And that involves building trust. And um, and he, he said, look, it's far easier to build trust with players when they know they're not going to be replaced, when they know that they've got at least half a season in which to prove themselves, that they have no doubts that this pre-season, it will only be those players there 
competing for slots in the team and competing for the, the manager's trust. And also, it takes away the complexities for Frank Lampard of having to deal in the transfer market. So, you know, that that process of talking, even if, it, if most of it's delegated to your recruitment staff, talking to your recruitment staff about which players, which positions you want to improve in, getting a list of, of names from them as proposals for, for each of those positions, um, and deciding for yourself whether you trust that recruitment department's recommendations and which ones you want to go for is a very complex, time-consuming, um, stressful part of a manager's job. Um, so you take all of that away from Lampard. You take away that um, necessity to convince your new group of players that your way of working is the right way and you have faith in them. Um, when there's a, the, the, the sort of looming possibility you might sign a new player during that window, during that pre-season to replace them. You take all of that away and you simplify the process of being a Premier League manager for the first time. So, so he, he was saying in retrospect, it, it's worked for Chelsea in two ways and it's worked for Frank Lampard in two ways. And um, he thinks it's actually, it's a great platform for Chelsea going forward and what, they, what they've been blessed with off the back of this is an opportunity to kind of build the structure and the spine of their team for the next five, potentially 10 years, because they've got this um, cohort of young players. Um, you know, I don't think you want to use a, an analogy to the, you know, the Manchester United class of 92, because that would probably be placing too much expectation on the players in terms of their individual quality. But the, the, the having so many come through at one time is almost unique um, in the English game post that Sir Alex Ferguson Manchester United era. I don't think we should underplay, Duncan, the role of Jody Morris either in this uh, particular first act of Frank Lampard's coaching career. Um, I recall having a conversation with Jody um, maybe about 18 months ago when there was interest in him as a coach from two clubs in England, one in Germany and one in Spain, because, of course, he enjoyed great success with the under-18s at Chelsea, leading them to um, uh, FA Youth Cup success, to Next Generation Champions League success, as well as... Um, uh, the Premier League 2, if you like, it's now called Premier League 2, uh, trophy as well in consecutive years. And Jody said to me, well, you know, I've kind of got a long-term idea about my career. I know that, and of course Frank and him are very close, that Lamps wants to be a coach. And maybe, just maybe, it will work out for us that I will be able to work with him in a professional capacity in the future. If it doesn't, then, yeah, I would consider going abroad or consider taking a job. But right now, I think I'm quite happy where I am. Now, let's just look at the players that Jody has coached who are now making an impact in Chelsea's first team. Tamori, Rhys James, Abraham, Hudson-Odoi, Mason Mount. These are guys who are now key players 
week by week for Chelsea, who Jody Morris has known since these kids were like 13, 14. Now, I'm not in any way denigrating um, Frank Lampard's influence on how these players have uh, performed under him for Chelsea, or in that case for Derby last season when he took three on loan. But Jody Morris has the trust of these guys. He has coached them um, from a very young age. And it seems to me like there's a proper umbilical connection between Jody and the player, younger players and then Frank coming in, obviously, as the, um, if you like, the, well, not just the head coach, but as the uh, the person who leads Chelsea now um, in terms of their football department and uh, is someone who obviously they respect as some as as a player who achieves so much success at Stamford Bridge, and so there's a, a kind of almost alignment of the stars here and the planets with regards to Jody's um, involvement with the players, Frank now coming in as head coach. And it seems to me like it's working for them. And I said, I, I introduced this segment by saying it's a kind of accidental revolution. Maybe it's just fate rather than accident. Fate rather than accident. Well, it depends whether you believe in, in, in fate or not. I... <sighs> I don't think I don't think this is was as thought through as it's um, as it's turned out to be. Um, I don't think there was a calculation there that, uh, for example, it would be easier for Frank Lampard to manage the team because he didn't have to deal with the transfer market. I think the perspective going into the window was more one of this is our opportunity to to save some money. Uh, and make some well, to money. Be fair, to be fair, Duncan, in the past, as we both know and we have both reported on the podcast, um, very few Chelsea managers get the chance to control the transfer market out of Stamford Bridge. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, and I, you would know better than me, but um, I don't think Frank Lampard's view going into his uh, first season as Chelsea manager would have been um, it's better for me not to have any option to buy players in this window. I think if you if you tell us whether I'm right or not, but I think if you'd asked them in uh, April, May, um, you're going to be Chelsea manager next season. Would you rather do it with or without a transfer ban? Um, all things being equal, uh, let's take away the, 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 the element of having a transfer ban lo- lowers expectations for you. But take take that element away. All things being equal, would you like to have been able to buy a couple of players for certain positions, and move certain players out that you don't trust, and, and get experience replacements? And I suspect he would rather have not had the transfer window ban. True. Um, I I wouldn't um, I wouldn't deny that would be the case um, for Frank or indeed for any manager going into a top four club uh, with regards to the ability to strengthen his squad. Um, I think what Frank uh, came across was a pretty good squad in terms of strength and depth. But again, he had three players on loan at Derby who he trusted and um, nurtured and got the best out of. And Frank himself would tell you that he never expected to be a Premier League manager um, after his first year as a head coach at Derby County. 
um, when the opportunity arose. It was one he couldn't turn down. But at the same time, he did actually go through a quite a painful and torturous um, session uh, and of uh, negotiation with regards to what the expectations were for him as Chelsea head coach, um, what his employment prospects were, if they didn't win trophies or they did, etc., etc., because he didn't want his, his fledgling coaching career to be ruined by what, of course, is the Chelsea way, um, which is maybe the second manager on average every two years. So he didn't want to go back to the club he loved, um, knowing or expecting that he might be sacked in one or two years. So he fought hard to get assurances from the owner with regards to what was expected of him. And obviously the transfer ban helped him in that because he wasn't asked or expected or could actually <laughs> spend money because the, the club was not allowed to. Um, now, what the situation we have coming up is uh, a CAS appeal um, with regards to the ban for the January window, which Chelsea seemed to be confident with regards to either appealing to have it suspended or indeed turned over. And he may or may not have the opportunity to buy and strengthen in January. But I do believe that he is a little bit apprehensive with regards to doing that because of the players that have done so well for him. He doesn't want to make them feel threatened. He doesn't want to upset the equilibrium of the dressing room, which has been built up uh, in a very, very um, successful considering uh, way over the first 12 rounds of games and of course will continue over the next three matches before four matches I should say before the January window opens uh, in earnest so therefore there is a kind of uh, let's just say a kind of safeguard mentality uh, with regard to the coaching staff at Chelsea that they feel like well why change things when it's not broken and to be fair to Frank, if you look at his own career, he's a big, big advocate of young players taking responsibility for themselves and going out on loan. He did it at Swansea. Rio Ferdinand, his teammate at West Ham, did it with Bournemouth. Um, David Beckham did it at Preston. Uh, and he looks back on that as a, a, a career-forging moment for him with regards to having to play in a division which was tough. Uh, he recalls um, one player at Swansea City putting up against a wall by the neck and saying, uh, no fancy stuff, son. I've got a mortgage to pay, and if we don't win and I don't get my one bonus, then I can't pay my mortgage. And he took that on board. He, took, he, he accepted that responsibility, aged 18, of having to play in a in a very, very different environment uh, in lower divisions for a team who were battling for their lives and their salaries. And he says that was the making of him. His actual words were, I went to Swansea as a boy, I came back to West Ham as a man. Now, I think he's in a small, not in the same way, saw that with Tammy Abraham going to Aston Villa, with Mason Mount and, uh, and Fikai Tomori, who obviously were at Derby with him. Um, and played in games which meant a lot week by week and indeed twice a week and three times a week with regards to the championship because that's the nature of that competition. So 
he's got faith in those guys. Uh, he saw them go through similar um, uh, challenges that he did when he was a young player. And therefore, um, he has to retain faith in them. And I think that's a good thing. And, and obviously, that's been played out by the inclusion of five of his Chelsea Academy graduates in England squads in the last two rounds of international matches. We've got Callum Hudson-Odoi, as well as the players I mentioned, and Rhys James as well. So, yeah, look, it's... it's it, who knows? Maybe it could be a, a little bit of a... a, a a shift in English football where academy players um, en masse rather than just one or two actually are given the opportunity to express themselves, get game time and prove themselves in the Premier League. Whereas, um, you know, we've just not seen that with, you know, a whole team, such as more than half or just less than half of a starting 11 um, lining up on a Saturday or a Sunday to play in a Premier League match in the way that um, you know Manchester United maybe put two or three in, or maybe only just one. Um, the same with Manchester City and Phil Foden, with Liverpool. You know these, all the elite clubs don't seem to have as many of these academy players coming through and playing consistently in the first team as Chelsea have right now. And of course, Chelsea were one of the worst teams in the Premier League in terms of reputation for recruiting foreign players, especially older players, if you go back 15, 20 years, rather than promoting young players from the academy. So, yeah, it's, it is a shift, I think. There's a seismic shift in terms of the way that things are going. And that has been slightly accidental. I think, um, I think we will see more academy players in the Premier League off the back of Chelsea's success. I think we'll see more academy players in the Premier League off the season where you're, you're having more young English players perform well. And, but I think fundamentally it's about an increase in quality, technical quality in the players. It's something we've discussed in the, the podcast before. Um, I don't think we're going to see this Chelsea situation replicated in other top teams because I just don't think you have that quality although the, the overall quality of academy players is improving, to have so many simultaneously is unusual. And it's a product of two things. One, the amount of money Chelsea have spent on their academy, which was huge, um, immense sums over the, the, the Abramovich era with actually very little return to them for a long period of it. They're now finally getting that return. Um, so they do have better players um, than most of, of their uh, opponents in the Premier League. Um, and I think also a product of um, the, this you know unique situation they've got themselves into with um, having that opportunity to bring so, so many through um, simultaneously. The other club which probably has the same quality of academy graduates and has spent as much money on them as Manchester City but they just don't have um, the ability to bring them into the first team because their first team is so good and they and they are pushing for immediate success all the time. They're pushing to win the Champions League. They have a coach in Pep Guardiola who's not prepared to take risks with kids because he knows the expectation on him is to deliver the Champions League. Um, so he wants best performance in every game and can't afford um, to 
bring those players through and, and, and experiment over results. You've got to say with Chelsea, the fixtures have been somewhat in their favour so far. Um, where they have slipped up is in the games against the bigger teams and this Manchester City fixture at the weekend is going to be very interesting to see if they can deliver a good result against one of the top teams when Chelsea are on a high. I think what may be something that other Premier League clubs pay attention to is that at present, you, you could argue that the two, two of the three teams outperforming in the Premier League are the teams that did nothing of, of significance with senior players in the transfer market. So you have Liverpool at top looking like they're going to win the title uh, with an extraordinary points tally from their opening 12 games, having done nothing of note in the summer. And you have Chelsea in the top four, quite well positioned to qualify for the Champions League, having done nothing um, against expectations. So I think Premier League clubs will be thinking maybe there's something to be said for minimising transfer activity. Even though we're under huge pressure every summer to buy players, even though there's this, this massive commercial expectation and fan interest in the transfer market, maybe it's not such a bad thing to, to have continuity in the squad and take that element of doubt away from some of the players if you know they're good enough and, and give them the ability to to work together for consecutive seasons and uh, to develop tactically for consecutive seasons with the same group of individuals. Well, I don't know about you, Duncan, but I'm not holding my breath before Frank Armisen or Michael Emanalo suddenly are in the press claiming <laughs> credit for uh, Chelsea's academy growth and the players who've come through. Um, this is, of course, Monday's Transfer Window podcast, which means we are going to um, conclude with the Heroes and Villains section. I am going to invite Duncan to give us his hero or out of football for the last few days before I give you my villain. Well, my hero is uh, someone who was, I thought was extraordinarily brave on social media last week, um, responding to a, a fairly sober um, and well-reasoned analysis from Josie Mourinho about where Chelsea were um, and saying that he'd been worried about them after the first game of the season and he was still worried about them in big matches, um, praising the great work that Frank Lampard had done, but questioning um, whether they were able to develop the pragmatism in their game that was needed when you're playing against the top teams and pointing out that they'd lost heavily to Manchester United, lost again in the League Cup, lost to Liverpool and shipped four goals against Ajax, which is pretty much all of the the major games they've played. Jody Morris's response was to to retweet the video and uh, and say Josie is still worried, uh, followed by three laughing emoji, which I think is a, a very brave and heroic thing to do given the uh, hostage for fortune element involved. Um, should results not go quite as swimmingly for Chelsea in the next um, couple of months? Fair enough. Um- for my villain, I'm going to fire up the DeLorean, go back 10 years uh, in time, because um, we often get the chance to do a historical villain. But I think this one deserves to be um, resurfaced, and that is Thierry Henry, who 10 years ago today 
uh, deliberately um, use his hand to put the ball in the Republic of Ireland's net in a World Cup playoff. And of course, sent them out of the 2010 World Cup in, uh, in doing so. He has since admitted it, but I'm not sure Duncan he admitted uh, to any kind of guilt or indeed um, kind of sorrow for it. But at the same time, um, he he did it and that's the case. And, uh, well, as I say, I just think it was um, a, an act of sheer um, uh, obvious uh, attempt to cheat another team. And given Thierry and I's relationship on and off through the years, uh, I just hope I don't bump into him in a plane anytime soon. You know what that means. So <laughs> that's it for Monday's Transfer Window podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. And also, of course, continue the debate with us, uh, where it's about Ryan Sterling and a potential move away, about Manchester United's uh, financial results, and of course, this um, claim that they will be involved in the FIFA World Cup uh, revamp in 2021, or indeed about Chelsea's new boys and how they are doing. Please get in touch at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, at Duncan Castles, at Garbo SJ. Um, again, you will probably see our timelines being very, very busy still, even in the last seven days. Uh, so uh, it'd be nice to change the narrative in terms of that particular debate. Uh, but if not, just keep texting us anyway and tweeting us. That'd be great. Uh, we will um, be back on Wednesday with your questions answered. Please, of course, tweet us your questions on all three of the Twitter handles that I've already given you so that we can uh, hopefully engage you even further. Um, as you know, uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, and of course, 1.5 million and more have listened to the podcast in the last couple of years, then get onto uh, iTunes Give us a five-star review and let's make that two million in the next couple of months. For now, all that's left for us to say is thanks for listening and we will see you through the transfer window on Wednesday. 